Let's go. Master of all things tabletop. With the Paladins of Podcast. They ruin the games you love by talking rules that suck, how to build kick-ass encounters, destroy worlds, and really get your players invested. So go ahead and throw that fistful of dice at someone. Because we're going on a side quest. What's up, Eli? Hey, Rob. How are you doing today? I'm actually really excited. What are you excited about? Well, when it comes to the paladins of podcasts and their personal lives, I got a brand new puppy. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. uh, Eight weeks old, little English bulldog. I've wanted one for at least 16 years. My wife is like, all right, we're doing it. So we did it. And uh, she's cute as hell. So really excited. Um, From the photos, she did look cute. Yes, I'll send you some more uh, at some other point. I don't want to like open up constantly, the floodgates. Yeah, and that, and I don't want to barrage her with uh, pose for the camera constantly. You know, inflate her ego. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today, I I really wanted to bring in a few topics that uh, have a potential to be really really heavy if we get into a philosophical side i'm going to try to avoid but i'd love to be able to talk about ai tools and how you can use them at your table uh for prep work which i've played around with i've tried i've done a little bit of um and i was impressed with the results and a few interesting mechanic ideas i've got for the system i have been developing all right let's uh you wanted to talk about the ai generators first right yes yes all right and Right now, we have a huge influx of technology, and we have been developing these technologies to generate images through multiple different programs, platforms. Um, a quick Google search will show you that they're free, they are paid, there are plenty of services. Um, and without getting into the ethical side of it all, Uh, They allow you to utilize text prompts or images to generate new images from their entire categories and catalogs of internet scrubbed photos. Now, are you mainly using AI generators for creating art or for creating text? So I primarily use something like, I'll be honest in Forefront, I'll use Midjourney to create NPC profile images for characters in my homebrew games. So it allows me to tweak ideas, tweak, uh, essentially flesh out a quick image that doesn't involve me having to sketch or draw something up. So where I would do something like that with really important NPCs because it was so time consuming, I can now provide images with almost any NPC that I can sit down, knock out a few beforehand, and uh, I've got them prepped and ready to go for a session. Now, part of me really likes that. I mean, ethics aside, part of me really loves it because I am not a very good artist and it would be great to be able to generate an image and be able to show your players and be like, this is what I had envisioned this NPC to look like. Right. But the other part of me that disagrees with it is I I also, I mean, in theater of mind, when you describe someone or describe something or describe a scene... Uh, five different people could picture five different variations of the same thing. And you're you're probably going to think whatever version you have is cool. 
And so by showing them the image, then it just puts all their opinions on that image, you know? Yes, and uh, that's true. There is definitely that aspect. However, if you also think about a lot of the times we'll describe a monster in the book, and it sounds like one thing to one person, five players, five different opinions, you'll show them the picture. So we have a set photo that we oftentimes show, or similar to finding a picture on the internet and just literally stealing it from an artist, like, hey, my character looks like this. Um, I, I feel it's in a very similar vein to that um, with more customizability, more customization. Uh, I, I do agree that the theater of the mind, though, is fantastic. When I describe something, I love being able to hear how the players envision it. It's always fun. Uh, but having something to show them also makes it easier for them to automatically associate certain attributes to characters. Because if you I give say them the, the photos, like, do they hold on to the photos? So what I've done is in my game room, in fact, because you and I do video, you can see the TV behind me. I tilt my TV uh, so the players can see it and I will display their uh, NPC profile photos on the television. So when they're talking to a specific NPC, I will have it display directly on the TV. Oh, that's a nice way to resolve the issue of, especially if you have two NPCs talking, mm -hmm. you just flip between the two images. So you know who's speaking. Right. So it does allow that. Um, now, again, here in this case, particularly, I'm going way above and beyond what a lot of DMs do in this case. Um, it's In fact, it's approaching a hybrid um, I don't say virtual tabletop space, but it's approaching the hybrid state of images and uh, available visual references while at the table. So instead of having everybody through like Discord or Roll20 or Foundry where they can kind of click on NPC profiles, they're just presented and they're there if they want to look at them. Um, and it's really cut my prep time for certain characters uh, I'd say at least in half by some regard because as we've talked before I like to do things visually sometimes I'll describe an NPC see what I like and then the inspiration hits me in the face like a brick so in, in this case you're just getting inspiration from the images that you've created uh, I've done both honestly full transparency I've used the images to create um jumpstart creative juices and I've used my creative juices to kind of build NPCs. Um, the technology is still limited to some degree, like eyes, hands, etc., are funny. So uh, whenever you show people that have imperfections, it's human nature to point them all out. They're like, Oh, that sucks. That's like, you know, he's got 22 fingers on one hand. They're like, you're right. Just ignore that. So it's nowhere near to, <laughs> at a grade where, <laughs> where it's free from objectivity from my players, but it does allow me the opportunity to, again, give them something visual to see or look at. Um, and it's, do, you, do you think you would go to the next level and hand them out as, like, NPC cards to your players? Because then they could add notes about the NPCs to, uh, to the images or to the files um, that they have. Can I, uh, can I preface that with something first? Sure. I grew up in the 90s where trading cards were phenomenally the thing. Like, they were actually bigger than comics for a bit. 
And so in 1992 to 1998, Fleer and Marvel teamed up for the Fleer X-Men Gold Series, Fleer uh, style Marvel line of trading cards. All right, I believe you. And these trading cards were a absolute guilty passion of mine to the point where even in my 30s, um, I will go on eBay and debate buying entire sets. All right. So to answer your question, I have turned all of my NPCs into trading cards that will print out on the card stock. And the back will have... Uh, stats on them, so they kind of get a quick rundown of that character. But that's that's in, that's all information for you, though, as a GM, right? That's not no, information that's, for the players. That's quick information for them to remember the, or to remember about the NPC. It might have a few personality traits, a few uh, key bits of information that they have, or uh, general ideas, and with a little bit of blank space at the bottom so they can write notes if they choose to do so and in which they're also printed out on card stock so in general they feel like an actual trading card plus the trading card frame that i added to it because i'm an excessively big nerd that's awesome (laughs) it It would be uh it'd be kind of cool to do this a similar thing if you were playing in a small enough ecosystem game be really cool to do the same thing with monsters especially yes. if it's a world or a game where you're trying to like either figure out the monsters or maybe the monsters can mutate because then the players can have you know information or knowledge about the the monsters and keep keep recorded knowledge that builds yeah but that's where you come into a limitation and we haven't mentioned limitations but like all i've talked this up it's kind of cool um Limitations like hands and eyes are one thing, but once you start breaching certain topics, um, the safety features built into a lot of AI programs kick in. So things that are overly grotesque, horror-based, gory, bloody, too revealing, or sexual and content nature, they have a hard time producing anything matching your vision because of those safety features. All right. I mean, I guess if you're trying to stray into those safety feature list areas, right? Well, like if you're trying to include a bunch of nudity. Yeah. So that obviously is going to be super difficult. But even for instance, remember when Craig was telling us about the uh, spider of the bear of eight, spider of eight bears, eight bears of spider heart? Yeah, the spider bear thing. Yes. Everything's a bear. Yeah, yeah, that's the episode. So I actually took that idea and I ran it through Midjourney multiple different ways. Absolutely multiple different ways. Only one time did I ever get a spider-looking creature with a bear's head. Every other time, no matter how I did it, I never got a combination of a spider-bear hybrid monster. Yeah, I mean, those are the limitations. of An AI can only create off of what it knows. So. Right. So it is. And truthfully, I mean, finding bears and spiders are easy to find, but the ability to combine them uh, to general degrees is one of those, again, limitations, like you had said. That means that some of these monsters and ideas that you have, if they're not super common, um, if it doesn't have a lot of things to reference from, it makes it up and it doesn't always do a very good job. 
You could but, be falling. This could also be falling into the trap of when when you first start using like a virtual tabletop, you want to use it to the nines. Everything needs to be gorgeous. Everything mm-hmm. needs to be beautiful. Everything needs to be a high quality map um, because you have the availability to create those so easily. Yes, but it's it's a virtual tabletop. You should just you should feel comfortable enough to just draw with a marker, or you know draw draw with a, a highlighting tool and draw out a map. Um, mm-hmm. if players are happy with that in person. They should, they'll be happy with it on virtual tabletop. And I agree, um, but I do also fall into that category of I like things to look a certain degree. But not just on virtual tabletops. I like to have things at a certain level of appearance, even at the table. Uh, so I don't think I'm a perfectionist, but I'm way pickier than I ever expected I would be on certain things. And one of them is the visual aids that I use. So I like things to have a consistent theme, a consistent um, like line thickness, a consistent weight, a consistent overall appearance, which makes it very hard for me to do things like find certain maps uh, in virtual tabletops. It also makes things difficult when generating NPC images because I try to keep them all semi-similar. Um, what I ended up doing is taking the time to really learn Midjourney's prompts, figure out how they worked, find its strengths, and I just feed everything to its strengths so I get things that are close enough related that uh, they go together. All right. But, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's one way to do it. I, yeah. I think you limit yourself a little bit by doing that. You know, if one of those things where if you only try things that you're good at, then you'll only try those limited things. Sometimes I, you got to try things that are completely new or different and uh, go out of the mold. And I, and I do. I do. But what I present to my players are the fancy ones that I like the most. I think so. that definitely comes down to personal preference. Yeah. Um, myself as a GM... I, I'm only one of seven players or one of six players at the table. Mm-hmm. I, there are days and weeks where I'll put in a, a large number of hours, but, uh, you know, you can only put in so much time. So, Right, I, and that's... I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, just, I, just, I, just, I just feel like uh, putting, like making sure everything is, is polished and universal in that sense, just so it all appears the same. I don't think that's as necessary as uh, coming up with good ideas that can like engage the party or just more evocative descriptions that everyone can. Um, but that's just a personal preference. So, it's I, I think that personal preference is is great. Again, having the experience I have, I'm a I'm able to do the same. I love giving vivid descriptions, vivid uh, detailed accounts of what's going on. I love using my voice and words. Uh, just, I feel like adding polished imagery is kind of like a cherry on top. Not so necessary. Here's, here's a question then. Now that yeah. you're showing images of your NPCs, are you still describing them to your players? Yes, I actually describe them before I show them the image. Okay. So most times I don't say, hey, you're talking to this guy, look at the TV. It's You meet uh, Samuel Morganson. He is dressed in a very deep red overcoat that stretches past towards his ankles and he's got a hat that looks similar to a red fedora and um when my players instantly say oh you mean like carmen san diego immersion broken and uh yep it's just boy carmen san diego thanks a lot dickheads <laughs> but <laughs> well 
it sounds like you should just name that character Carmen San Diego. Bang, bang, boom. <laughs> Maybe Why Carl right? San Diego. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's true. Um, but one of the things I've been really excited about is Chat GPT, the uh, OpenAI chat program, yeah. uh, artificial intelligence responses, and. I've been playing around with this really in depth for, uh, I want to say the last few weeks. Um, I was kind of new to it, trying to figure it out, feel it out, figure out some of the things that it, uh, it can do well. And I have to tell you that I'm incredibly impressed. And I've, I've asked it to do many different things that are all game related. Like, like what kind of things? Well, one of the first things I did was ask it to explain to me certain rule systems from third-party publishers because I didn't okay. feel like reading through the entire book. And it explained to me in depth, in an easy-to-follow process, how to do this. Do you think they were accurate? I double-checked. They were accurate. All right. Well, so I was like, all right. I... We're one, one for one. I would not use any form of AI response for any sort of research required purpose. It, it's just a start. Like, I like, you know what? We're having a conversation. You say you know about it. What do you know? I double checked it. I'm like, all right, we're good for that. So I kept pushing. Sure, I asked, but if you're, if you're, if you just look up, if you look up directions on your GPS and it tells yeah. you to jump in a lake. If you jump in a lake as your first step, it's an awful first step. Yeah, unless you need to be in the lake, right? You got me there. <laughs> so I, I kept pushing a little bit. I was like, what else can we do? I I had it generate a uh, an NPC stat block for first edition Pathfinder and fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I mean, it came up with everything. Level, CR experience value to it all of its stats uh feats that it had abilities and it presented itself like a i don't want to say an excellent character excellent npc it was just a generic standard npc that fit the bill well good for whoever created that to build that into their functionality um, i i right? have i do like the the use of like chat dpt to like just create descriptions for people or yes. maybe create a random personality. Um, I would like to read to you a description that I was working with ChatGPT to create on a specific a homebrew monster. Okay, but like, let me ask you a question. How long yes. did it take you to create this description using ChatGPT? Like how often um, were, how long were you fiddling around with it? About three minutes. Alright, cool. So But the, you probably don't need to read the whole description. You're creating it's not, a good description, I'm assuming. It's not super long. Okay. Ready? As I'll ever be. Alright. Morbilix, the abyssal arachnomorph, is a horrific sight to behold. Towering over her opponent, she stands at over fifteen feet tall. Her centipede body covered in chitinous armor that gleams in the dim light. Her eight spider-like eyes glow with an otherworldly malevolence. Her mouth full of razor-sharp teeth that drip with venomous saliva. 
As she scuttles forward on her numerous legs, her two human arms raise up and unleash a barrage of webbing, ensnaring her prey and dragging them closer to her waiting, excuse me, her waiting maw. Those who are uncomfortable enough, unfortunate enough to be caught in her grasp feel the crushing pressure of her many legs as she constricts them, savoring the thrill of their pain. Their very sight of Morbilix is enough to strike fear into the hearts of even the bravest heroes. Her monstrous form and deadly attacks are a testament to the horrors that can lurk in the darkness, waiting to pounce on the unsuspecting. Cool. I mean, What did you put in for the description? Like, What did you feed to ChatGPT for that? I said I would like a spider, a spider-like monster. Nope. I would have to go back and double check the exact one. I want to say it was, I want a female torso and head with eight spider-like eyes, teeth like sh uh, sharks, a human torso on a centipede body and shoots webs from her human-like arms and hands. Um, and I asked it for a cinematic description. Okay. So, kind of gave it some general parameters, and that's what it spewed out. And it's it's not bad. Not bad at all. And it's again when you read monster descriptions from uh, the bestiaries or anything, um, they're more formulated on exactly what it looks like, not how it moves and the terror that it would inspire. Um, but again, adding a little bit extra, and I can slice, dice, pull out from here if I choose to do so. Indeed you can. I, I dig it. Uh, yeah, three minutes. Boom. I got something. It's a description I can use. I can feed it into something. And it's more customized to a scenario I'd like to use than using a website. Uh, damn it. I forgot the name of it. I have it saved on my phone, but my phone's dead. Uh, there's a website you can pay a service for. It will provide descriptions for you based on what you want. Like well, could the alternative just Ins. be writing a description? It could. Have you ever come across writer's block, though? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying that the alternative to ChatGPT is not paying a service. You're right. You're right. And uh, I've been experiencing a lot of writer's block, uh, creative block recently, ever since I had that huge fallout with uh, the, the player that we decided to nuke my Friday game. And I've used ChatGPT to help jumpstart that good writing prompts, good starting ideas. And I, I, I've pushed it even farther than this. Um, I used it to develop uh, an entire city. And I just don't mean like stats, but I'm like, who are the powerful figures? Who are you know the powerful players? Who are the ins and outs? Who are the ones feeding information? What are the factions? What are the organizations? You know, Give me everything about the city and I built it piece by piece. So, I, I, I mean, for for you, what is the difference between doing that, like creating an mm -hmm. entire city block by block and taking an established setting or finding a source book or a, a, a city a city guidebook and adapting that for your world? Well, for me, it really comes down to the amount of time and effort and work that have to be put into it on my behalf. And then the, uh, I don't want to say exactly tailor-made, but close to tailor-made for what I'm looking for to work. So I don't have to hunt down things like Dwarven City statistics if I'm building a Dwarven City, if I can just hit up a reference that has most of this at a few seconds of a parsing its information bank. Um, 
granted, I could do the same thing with a few Google searches and copy and paste all the information together. But again, that's more time, effort, and work I have to do. Now, the city that I built, not going to go in a game because it's I didn't build it with a game in mind. I was just, how far can I go with this? But I was going to ask you about, like, I mean, how much... How dynamic was the city that you create that you created using Chat GPT? As dynamic as I pushed, if that makes sense. Like I could stop on the surface level, but I can also deep dive. I can be like, give me the ins and outs of parts of the city. Give me ins and outs of the people who run the taverns. And then I can use it for prompts too. What kind of rumors do they hear? What kind of things are going on that the party may come across? Um, it it allows you to build up a fantastic amount of starting points. You could use them as is, but I believe that they're a little too generic to feel authentic in a homebrew setting. But they're generic enough where a little bit of twist into the flavor, they're going to fit. Uh, cutting down that prep time for a lot of people is, uh, that's a huge thing. Um, so would you play a game ran by an AI? I think anytime we sit down to play a video game, it's the same thing. Right, but, but like, would you do uh, one of these? I mean, people have talked about doing like uh, an, an AI GM that runs yeah. you through an adventure. Sweet. Absolutely. I mean, honestly. They're coming for our jobs. Not at all. I don't believe that at all. There's, I don't think that we're going to be replaced. I mean, at the end of the day, that human connection, the human uh, emotional investment and the human condition are going to still provide a better experience because there are still limitations with AI. Um, one of my favorite things I generated with this and the AI allowed me to do this because I did not, was not, and refused to do so was take the time to do this myself. I had players come across the library and they're like, what books have I found? I'm like, ah, shit, I can just give you some titles. But why stop there, Eli? I generated book content. Well, you should stop there because that's just too much. Why do the players want to read every single book in a library? Do that if you're playing Skyrim. I don't know, but they're having a blast with it. And <laughs> they, they they are absolutely loving it. Like, okay, this is ridiculous, but you know, they ask for it. My right, job like what is what does that mean at your table when they when you say that they're loving it? Because I thought you said there was only one player at your table that was really into lore. Lore? Yes. Finding different shit to look up and look into. That now they're all about it. I introduced my Twisted Justice party to a magical college town. And they're like, oh, I want to learn about magic. I'm considering doing this. I'd like to buy a hippogriff. Are there any books to train it? Well, yes. There are books on knowledge and all of those things in this magical college town. So when they ask for a book on a hippogriff, you give them a literal book written by a chat GPT on how to train a hippogriff? Essentially, the book is a condensed version in one page, and it details all the things in the chapter. And I present it like it's like the actual book. Um, in which, on the hippogriff that I 
the hippogriff book that I titled Your Big Dumb Horsebird, Chat GPT had a really hard time generating the book I wanted because it refused to uh, develop anything that could be construed as the mistreatment or cruelty or violence towards animals, whether it be hypothetical, fictional, or real, or mythological. So it refused to really do anything, even calling a hippogriff a big, dumb, stupid animal. Ah. Well, like, do they read the, like... Do my players read them? Yeah. Yes. All right, well. Yes. Glad you found some players interested in that. They Not only do they read them, they, con they, like, I give them to them before a game so they have an opportunity to read them so they're not just, like, distracted for an hour at the table bullshitting about how ridiculous they are. Um, but once they have, like, a good one that they really like, that they enjoy, they don't stop talking about it. So it kind of incentivizes me to provide so more. You give, do you give them the book before they've got it in game? No. Or you just, I, oh, you just, once they've yeah. received it, the next game session they come in, they'll yeah. have that book in their, their thing. Yeah, what I do is right. they're like, hey, can I have a book on hippogriffs? I'm like, sure, I will get it written up and you'll have it before next game. So, so that way... Does that help your game? Me? It doesn't. It just provides more for my players. Like, what does it provide them? They really enjoy it. It increases the amount of fun that they have. They look for new things that they can research and I identify. So it's no longer just, well, my games haven't really been murder hobos for a while, but it gives them an opportunity to do more things than just murder hobo. They get to investigate things that they are interested in as characters, and I'm providing them with a lot of in-depth information that they get to look over if they choose to do so. But them being able to do that and experience that also helps put them farther into the immersion of the game itself. So right. that is yeah. really where I've been enjoying the system because it takes a load off of my back. Because like I said, I don't have to write a one-page book. I can just ask somebody to do it for me because for me as a DM, it's throw away. But for them, they love it. Yeah, that, that seems like a good reason to do that. It yeah. definitely brings more enjoyment out of maybe more minor or uh, smaller loot or just more mundane activities. Absolutely. And, I mean, we a lot of people have some of these uh, issues with things like chat GPT. Like, oh, well, in AI generation, it's all generic. They all throwing it all together. But at the same time, we look at things like Don John, who has been around on the internet for years generating random loot, random dungeons, random NPCs, the same thing, but it's being called against a website versus a conversational based model AI unit. Well, I, I think that strays back into the ethical concerns of, uh, of the AI. So it can, but I mean, at the same time we're doing very similar things. It's pulling from the same information, the same sources, Plus uh, more, at some cases, uh, and exactly. minus on others. I, I mean, when you create a book and you create a chart that's got, you know, a hundred a hundred things you can encounter in a in a town. Um, that's that's very different than having, uh, like, how how these AIs are being trained. 
but that's in the ethical conversation. So it does, and we we, we want to stray away from uh, that, the ethical side because there are uh, two raging debates, and um, I know you and I kind of stand on slightly different sides, and that's okay. It's not bad. Um, but as I mean, to- I I I like to use the chat. I like the ch- I haven't used it, but I like the concept of the text-based chat GPT in uh, in generating descriptions and. Um, you know, even descript- generating uh, the inside of books, because every once in a while, players will ask about that. Yeah. Um, For example, uh, you had a player harvest yellow mold. Indeed. And he wanted to make it into a tea. Yeah. You could use something like ChatGPT and ask it to formulate a recipe for yellow mold tea. Yeah, but why does that matter? It like it doesn't. it doesn't exactly. So I don't need that. I don't need no. the players to tell me, "Hey, I've got three I've got three tablespoons of uh, of mint leaves and they're mixing together a tea." They can just tell me that they're mixing a tea. They don't need to be subject experts. No. In the in-game world. I you're right. But on top of that, there's also no harm in but like, "Hey, here's a recipe for yellow mold tea." If, you want to keep trying to go for it. I, I see it as a harm in the sense that it's giving your players too much information about things that aren't essential. If that makes sense, and like that, I, that's I don't want to. Like I don't like the dis- the reason why I'm iffy about the descriptions and the the stuff about books is. I, I really want to make sure that I'm not giving them misinformation about the world or, f- yeah, misinformation, essentially. I don't want to give them um, misinformation on these on these nice handouts. I guess as, uh, as I've been generating, I find ways to make sure that it's not misinformation. So, like, I end up having to proofread everything. I'll change some things as necessary, but uh, in general... It's no harm for the world, in my case. I guess it well, depends I, on what I, you're looking to do. I hope your players start dropping more like random knowledge from the books into the game, because that would be that would be awesome. That'd be hilarious, and I I, I love the fact that as of right now, uh, the hippogriff, whose name is, if I remember correctly, uh, Harambe Stormbreeze. Cool. And it's in its own own, own right. Um, as better do is the the big dumb horse bird now, and it's just comical. So, so you again. had uh, you said you wanted to talk about some game mechanics. Yeah, are I thought game too, mechanics I... are they generated by ChatGPT? No. All right. No. Um, I've been working on a few different ideas, uh, looking into a lot of different systems, and trying to parse a lot of the reddit pundits and news articles that talk about (laughs) really great systems and mechanics yeah um you and i both agree we find something we like kind of steal it shoehorn it where we want it need it etc and i'm not trying to build the perfect system but i'm trying to build one that i want to play so that's ideal um if you build a system you don't want to (laughs) play oof be fair I think there are plenty of systems that have been built that people don't want to play, but are built because they would be successful. Uh, maybe. 
I think there are a few. Anyhow, before we get down that corporate shithole of a ladder, um, you've played a lot of different narrative-styled games, right? I've played a number of games, yeah. How do combats generally work? Um, what, how do you mean? All right, so in a game, uh, what's your preferred narrative system? Um, we could talk about Wild Seas. Okay. Uh, in Wild Seas, as a narrative-based system, do you have initiative? Uh, yep. All right, um, so... I'm pretty sure there's initiative. Um... Okay. So, the general idea of initiative is turn-based combat. And I assume that even in a narrative game such as Wild Seas, again, you're in initiative, so it's turn-based. Yeah, usually it's turn-based. Yeah, you're, I think, I'm pretty sure in the way that system goes is your players can take turns in whatever order they like. Once they've all gone, I'm pretty sure it's the, the, the monster gets to respond if it, if it is or wants to. I would call that kind of like initiative light. Yeah. Because they all get to go, then we as DMs get to respond kind of thing. My idea for an, an initiative system is more narratively driven than initiative driven so the players okay. would be able to explain what they want to happen and roll the dice to see how it happens and then after they're all done i react with uh essentially the reaction in an order that makes narrative sense so say three players have ganged up on a goblin they're like, I want to attack with a sword. I cast a spell and, uh, you know, I try to snare it with some rope, whatever. Um, make their rolls, make my rolls, and then we describe how that plays out afterwards without figuring out an order of who goes when. Okay, so it's kind of more like everything happens simultaneously in each round? Yes. Yeah. That's all we got. Just yeah. What are your thoughts I, on that? I mean, what uh, it's it's interesting because it means that your monsters always like your players don't ever have an opportunity to stop the enemy from acting, right? I, if everything happens simultaneously, they could do a bunch of damage, right? Like in a D and D system, you get first turn, you drop a fireball. Well, they're all dead. No more turn for you. Right. So now I understand what you're saying now. So I would say that uh, it would really depend on how things go. Um, I mean, obviously, if the, the creature, the goblin, attacked first in an ambush setting, he'd be able to uh, spring it upon them and they would react. After that, they would be able to act and he would react. Um, it would be that that's more situational. So. All right, okay, we're in the middle of a combat. You've got yep. three people wailing on a goblin. Yep. How does that work? All so. three of them described they're doing an action against this goblin. Yep. The goblin says, I'm stabbing. Then you, then as a group, you describe them all doing their actions and the goblin stabbing. Next turn, goblin's still alive. Just rinse and repeat. Yeah, that's pretty much like how all combat is, though. I, I mean, not necessarily, because in 
in other games you go back and forth between people describing their actions and mm-hmm. as soon as you have an action the the effect is immediate as opposed to everyone yep. describes and then the effects all going into place all at once so i guess i'm looking at it like um i don't use the word cinematic again I, i'm envisioning it a little bit more cinematic so it allows players to kind of describe what they're doing and then when the goblin gets to react uh, he reacts in an order that makes sense for his tactic that you have placed upon him so if two of them are trying to slice him down with swords one wants to shield bash him you can say um i'm going to repose dodge and try to trip this the shield bear um because all those actions are resolved then you give the narrative description Okay. I'm, I, I still, like, it does sound like you're... So, after that happens, does the next turn the goblin acts first? And then the party reacts to what the goblin's doing? Like, I don't see where the nope. reacting necessarily comes in. Because in the, in the nope. first place, it's... you've described, like, them all attacking the goblin, right? And then the yeah. goblin basically having, reacting to all three, and you got you describing it. But True. so if you do it yes, the opposite he would, order, the goblin would have an opportunity to act first, or so to speak. Um, the idea that I'm I'm trying to build upon is actually eliminating initiative. Okay. And this is where it's been kind of difficult because I get the players act first, NPC reacts, NPC acts first, players react. Um. But building it out past that, again, I mean, it's kind of rinse and repeat with the ability to um, I think the issue here got to lay the baseline. All right. Well, actually, just what is your goal with this initiative system? Um, a more narrative styled combat that plays more that plays similar to the output of initiative without having an initiative. So I, you're trying to have it be more narrative, but it still sounds Mm -hmm. like only one person is narrating, right? Because they're just going through and saying their actions, you react and then describe narratively what every, what everyone did. I wouldn't have to describe what everybody does. Everybody can describe what they individually do. And then as the goblin reacts, because the system that I'm building for this uses contested roles. Okay. This is that baseline. I just kind of like realized that without it, um, it doesn't make as much sense. All right. So contested roles, but when are those roles yep. resolved? Are they resolved when the player declares or when the person reacts? The roles are resolved after the uh, total outcome of an individual event. So if player A attacks the goblin, he has to have, he has to meet or beat the uh, success condition to attack or defend. The attacker will roll, the defense will have to beat the attacker's success conditions um, for his defense to be successful. If his defense is successful, he does damage instead of the attacker. 
And if the attacker is successful, he does damage. So this allows for a lack of initiative system because the goblin as the NPC technically does not need to actively attack so long as he is winning a defensive maneuver. So tell me this. Player A attacks goblin and does enough damage to kill the goblin. Yes. What happens next? Does player 2 declare an action? Does player 3 declare an action? And does the goblin declare an action? Uh, Because we would resolve the die rolls first before the full narrative, they wouldn't have to. Because it sounds like you just have a system where the players go first and act in in whatever order they like, and then the Mm -hmm. goblin gets to go. It's not everyone. You still have an order, right? Because your your players are still going in some certain order, and that order directly affects like who gets to then act down the line. Truthfully, not yet. Like I said, I'm trying to eliminate the initiative idea, which some games have done successfully that are more narrative based. Like there are there are tabletop games that have zero initiative. And it kind of blows me away. I'm like, I like the idea, but I don't like the way it plays out in that system. If I could eliminate the initiative and still have the play out that I'd like, I think that would be something I would enjoy. Well, what do you, what do you dislike about a system that says the players go first in whatever order they choose? And then that's just the system. And then similar to yours, if you roll badly, you can actually take damage from the own, your own effects. Mm-hmm. The one thing I dislike about players deciding however they decide to go is that it takes, most times, too long for players to decide who goes next. Your system you just described would ha- would have the players deciding which order to go in. Only who decides to speak. Uh, what's the difference? Because how it's resolved in the description can change the order in which... Uh, the players who describe their actions happen. So if person one always speaks and just keeps speaking, they can just take as many actions as they want? No, they have to have... The goblin has to have a response still. So if you say something, I say something, you say something, I say something, you say something, I say something, then that's a perfectly valid combat? In a singular one-on-one? Yes. No, with two other people with us. But because you've responded to me with the goblin's reaction... I can then respond again. No, it would... uh, Everybody would still have to have the opportunity to be able to uh, provide an action if they choose to do so. So if person A spoke, person B spoke, person C spoke, Goblin would respond to person... Well, would roll, contested roll against person A. Yep, B, then B, then C. Then C. And then the description of how it went down as how the Goblin reacted could react to any order in which the three of them had attacked. Sure, but the physical act of people going in an order is, the order is completely determined by your table. Speaking first, it's just that's the same as saying the players decide who goes first. That's Or are you literally going to wait for someone to go like to physically say something at a table and you go, alright, what are you doing? No. No, it, again, it would play out like uh, whoever decided to speak first does not necessarily commit the first action. Right. They're just the first to but resolve 
you, the die mechanics. You still have that situation where if the first person, if they're, if the result of their, their role just resolves the situation, mm-hmm. you don't go into the other people. I could, because as the way I'm envisioning, if his blow is going to kill the goblin, narratively, it would be last in the initiative. So everybody still had a chance to strike, still had a chance to repose. Goblin still has a chance to defend, but in the end, he still dies. I, but that just seems like a, a waste then, because you're, if you already know the results, like you're, but you're, like, do you see where I'm getting at? Like, you're just going to engage mm-hmm. in however long your three actions resolve, and you're, you're just ending up with a bunch of interaction that isn't needed. It's not to design a more realistic style combat, just to get more a cinematic and narrative style. So that is my first first thought. Okay. Uh, is is to keep is how to keep that narrative cinematic feel. And this is just one idea, like kind of trying to figure it out, trying to get a feel for right, it. Here's my follow up question: If it's, this is a mm-hmm. cinematic game, what type of cinema? What movie are we talking? I mean, cinema could be the lobster. It could also be Lord of the Rings or Marvel. Uh, Notebook is also a cinema. You're right. Um, God damn it. Burt Reynolds was the goddamn king. Burt Reynolds was the king. That's, the, that's all I remember right now. Uh a King Arthur movie, if I remember correctly. Uh, okay. In the name of the king? I believe so. From, like, 1980s. A dungeon siege tale. That's from 2007. Nah, I think it had to have been earlier. It's an old school movie. All right. Well, bad, bad CGI. I, Anyhow. I believe you. That, that, that is how I, I envision kind of, like, a low magic movie. Uh, medium fantasy cinematic feel uh, with total heavy plays against something along the lines of um, A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger. Okay. So, uh, that kind of thing. Do you hear my cat? Yes, I did. Several times. He's he's, compl- he's complaining about this too. <laughs> says, no, it's a bad idea. Stick with the commonalities. Really cares about this Burt Reynolds movie. He does. I bet he knows the title of Arrow Away. In fact, if anybody knows the title of this damn movie so I don't have to look it up, let me know. Because I will wait till next week to reveal it if I remember, which I won't. <laughs> so All right. We're, we're pushing a heavy time on it, but I still had two mechanics I was, I was considering. Do you want to talk about and it I now, to... or do you want to talk about it next episode? Uh, we got the initiative out of the way. We can talk about the other one. All right. If you have time. Uh, yeah, I got time. Okay. So my assistant wants to use a contested role system. And I was I like fighting it. with the idea of good, because I was fighting with the idea of magic. What in what way are you fighting with magic? I love it when you ask these questions, Eli. <laughs> um, magic is generally inherently overpowered, considering um, combat with melee characters. So keeping that balance at a feasible level 
is something that I've been attempting to do. I and fundamentally disagree. That magic is overpowered? Uh, the, that you're comparing magic to melee? I think that is a stupid comparison. I'm not I'm not comparing it to melee as a direct comparison, just what? when a you just when a knight compared when it. a when a knight fights a wizard. Okay. If the wizard has ranged spells, nine out of ten times the wizard is going to win. Sure. Right? Why is that a comparison you're making? Because in my system I want the ability for the knights to fight the wizards without feeling like they're going to die every single time. I am, like, I mean, I feel like high-level knights in a few systems don't always die um, because you also have, like, magical gear and you can just survive. Um, But I I don't think you should ever think about the world as two player characters fighting each other. I wasn't. I was thinking about NPCs. I mean... Sure. But any and anyhow, before we go down that rabbit hole and, and expand this episode by another hour, uh, the idea that I was having is that I wanted to treat a lot of the same mechanics that are built upon melee characters with spellcasters, where they can take training and mastery levels in the uh, the spell abilities which would give them additional success conditions or give them additional um, numerical range numbers on their die pools. So it makes casting spells easier. So and then, to increase the... Dis- to, 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 cha- to challenge the disparity between melee and magic, you've made magic easier and more specializable? That's where I was like, nope, this isn't working. Because... The amount of success conditions is part one. A spellcaster has to meet the success conditions to successfully cast a spell. When they roll their die pool, the leftover dice is the defender's uh, essentially difficulty check for their contested roll. So <clears throat> if a spell condition if a spell requires one success condition and a spell caster rolls three successes, the defender will have to exceed two successful defenses in order to not be as affected or not affected by that spell. Okay. How does that help melee casters or melee fighters? Because... To put it in common terms that I'm incredibly familiar with, the first condition to be the first success condition to be able to cast the spell is similar to the idea of spell resistance. If they can't beat that, the spell is unsuccessful. They may get feedback depending um, on how badly they did. Uh, still working some of those details out, depending on what route this goes. The second one is that by taking their entire die pool and utilizing part of it for the casting success allows lower based characters a more level playing field a chance for success so the the mage has a, a pool of dice and they can split the dice between casting the spell and 
making the spell hard to resist. No. One pool. The whole thing. And then it's just so, the margin of success that the... So if you, you know, if you need a one, you roll three, the person saving only needs to get two. Yes. Right. That way it keeps things level. And then increasing spell power. Remember how I mentioned I thought about making it easier for the casters to cast spells by training and taking mastery? Taking mastery and training those skills increases spell power. So it goes up with additional spell successes necessary to cast, but damage or range or effect goes up. So therefore, my question yeah. is, how does this not make low-level magic incredibly weak? The idea is to keep it low magic. Well, can't you, as you level up, specialize and spend a bunch of points, and then your magic gets stronger? Yes, but only, I don't want to say marginally, but comparatively, it gets stronger uh, as a percentage. So it may be 10% stronger, 25% stronger, 40% stronger by the end. Um, those are horrible numbers because it, a 50% increase of one is literally only 0.5. So but, how does this make, like, why would you want to play a mage in this setting? The mage still has the ability to cast from a distance, uh, create harm, and still has access to more powerful abilities and spells. But the more powerful spells are harder to cast. But then easier to resist. Um, yes and no. I mean, you, you're only competing you will, against you, the margin of success. Right. But there are going to be requirements in order to get to certain spells. I don't know what that means. But Eric, in order to here, be able let me to... just ask you a, a more question yeah. about your system. Do you want yeah. your system to be, like, do you want all the players at the table to have, be an equal power level? Or do you want, at different times of the game, for each player to have different relative levels of power? I would like to keep them in the same ballpark. So ballpark to put it in terms... It could. It it could. But what I don't want to happen is I don't want to see, excuse me, in old school D&D and Pathfinder style terms, I don't want to see level 20 characters where one of them is so overpowered, one of them is useless. I, I, I a little bit disagree, um, just in the sense that I, I think having different power levels between your characters is okay and I think part of being that first or second level wizard barely able to survive hiding in the back is like the you have to put in all that effort before you get to that 20th level mage who can obliterate yeah. an army at a distance like I think it's comparing apples to oranges yes but if you take an entire party of individuals and one of them wants to play the shiny knight at level 20 who pales in comparison why even be there if his wizard friend can blow up the entire army before he gets on his horse and rides into battle because uh, i think those there are different challenges for different characters and at 20th level an army is not a 
is not a suitable challenge for uh, a 20th level paladin. A 20th level paladin should fight, or a knight should, you know, be fighting singular duels with other characters, or... I'm not saying he's going to ride in and fight the entire army, but there's at least one guy in there for him to fight. And I'm saying that every challenge doesn't need to be faced equally by every party member. No, but I do strongly believe that they should each have the an equal opportunity to be able to shine. I, I still think that characters have equal opportunities to shine um, if there's varying power, power levels. I, I think that's more of a, a GM issue. If you're presenting a problem that only that one person just solves instantly, you, sh- you shouldn't worry about it trying to challenge the other party members because one person can just take care of it. It's like a locked yeah, door. Where... Like, I'm not too worried that uh, one of my party members can't... Like, if, if one person can get through the locked door, they don't all need to try to get through the locked door. Right. But if my one player can cast Fireball every single time and obliterate the need for any combat every single combat, no matter what, every single time, well, I have an entire party to go out and adventure. I can just send the wizard. Why have combats is my question. Because if combat... Right. Well, that should not be the focus of your game anymore is what I'm saying. But the fighter, the paladin wants to fight somebody. Well, he's going to fireball him to death. That's not fair. Yeah. Well. So I'm trying. I'm trying to develop a a system where there is equal opportunity to do so. Where the advantage for the spellcasters may be marginal, maybe slightly higher, but it does not eliminate the necessary need for other characters in a party. It's a good goal. That's the hope. That's the hope. So the idea is to continue using the contest mechanics where as spells become more powerful, success conditions are harder. Certain requirements, prerequisites have to be met in order to cast them. And then it also deviates the uh, defense condition for individuals. I guess numerically I'd be interested in in seeing how uh, how high your saves can get. Um, because if the spells just ramp up in difficulty, your probably margins of successes are going to be the same, regardless of low or high level. If your save dice is continue to level increase, it'll just beat every margin of success. I, I've eliminated save dice. Well, then it's all based oh. off ability. It's all based off abilities. Well, then the abilities are your save dice. Yes. Bro, I got, you know what? Honestly, once I get everything finished out, I'll send you a copy. I want you to tell me what you think about it. All right. Because it is different as hell. Good. I'm interested in reading it. (laughs) Good good deal. Chapter one, two, and three are in proofreading right now. One, two, and three. I can count that high. Hey, me too. Yes. I was a carpenter. Our local is one, two, three, four if I was residential. So. The joke was we could only count that high anyway, so that's why we didn't have more uh, locals. I mean, you only got four fingers. We need to count any higher. This is a joke about the thumb not being a finger, isn't it? It hits on multiple levels. You got me there, Eli. All right, guys. We have just hit an hour, and before we go down a rabbit hole, with my confusing mechanics that I refuse to tenderly talk about in depth, but try to explain, I wish you all a wonderful week. Check us out at epictablegames.com, and we'll see you next week. 
Eilat. Eli, any advice before we cut, cut out? If you don't like bitter eggplant, you should sweat it for an hour before cooking with it. What does that mean for those who don't know? Uh, you basically just salt, like slice up your eggplant, salt it, leave it on the counter for an hour. Oh, I thought you just kind of bring up some pressure about how it was a horrible eggplant when it was younger and let it ruminate in disappointment and despair. I mean, that's if you're actively trying to make it sweat. If you got a podcast to do, you just leave it on the counter and let it be alone. Fair enough, guys. We'll see you next week. All right, sweet dreams. Okay, new intro. We've changed the name, and we're still using the word paladin. Paladin. I mean, it hasn't been used in the English language in about 200 years, but okay.